What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health. Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilov and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. And today I'm actually recording a show in London, England. I was able to come to a conference on diversity issues. I'm here today uh, with uh, Philip Morgan, who is the volunteer project coordinator for a really interesting organization, Tower Hamlets African and Caribbean Mental Health Organization. He is working on issues of empowerment in the African and Caribbean communities, improving services in the hospitals and the system, and um, addressing all kinds of issues that we'll be hearing more about. I'll just read um, a little bit about THACMO, the Tower Hamlets African and Caribbean Mental Health Organization. THACMO began out of concerns that a disproportionate number of African and Caribbean people were being detained at St. Clement's Psychiatric Hospital which is a um, hospital in this area of London. And uh, one of their reports says that young black men are six times more likely to be compulsorily detained than the national average, that for black minority ethnic groups, the average lengths of stay are longer than they are for white people, and that for black minority and ethnic groups, patients are more likely than white people to be prescribed drugs or ECT rather than psychotherapy or counseling. THACMO is a service user uh, run organizations. So um, let me say a little bit about Philip. He's the volunteer project coordinator for um, THACMO. And um, recently there was an event that happened um, in Brixton and Philip was on the panel. And I'll just read a description of him um, from the event. Um, Philip Morgan is a free-thinking, nonconformist being with an unusually high moral fiber, a strong character and revolutionary spirits that he likens to a breath of fresh air. Social scientist, philosopher, and raconteur are labels and descriptive descriptives that might ascribe to Philip. However, he does not feel comfortable with labels as he feels they detract from what a person really is. So perhaps Philip is the original humanitarian environmentalist and naturalist. Um, so thanks a lot for joining us today on Madness Radio, Philip Morgan. Uh, thanks, Will. Um, I'm glad to be here. Um, I just want to say a couple of things. Um, firstly, um, the um, St. Clement's is, is now closed. The hospital um, um, that you referred to earlier is now closed, and it's, uh, the uh, the psychiatric unit is now a further down the road at a place called Mylan Hospital. And also, um, it's not my words that somebody says about me being... Um, a breath of fresh air is what somebody else has used to describe me. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so there's a slight mistake there in the bio. But yeah, glad to be here still. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about um, this organization, DACMO, and, and the work that you do in it. And then I want to ask you um, also about your own personal experiences and how you became a service user. They're called service users here in sure. in the UK, not so much uh, consumers or survivors. Yeah, um, some are called survivors, those who have come out of the system the other way, you know. Um, so from being a service user, you would become a survivor, say. Um, however, I'm not comfortable with none of those terms. But um, going back to FATMO, like uh, they began in 1996, um, originally as a consultation um, to take that took place in the borough of Tower Hamlets to find out amongst African and Caribbean service users what they thought about the mental health services provided in the borough. 
and clearly there wasn't enough and also about the disproportionate numbers of African Caribbean um, people young black men mostly um, in psychiatric units and um, and also have the same problems in, in, in prisons as well um, but um, we had this little consultation in 1996 and um, after the consultation the results of the consultation rather um, the findings of the consultation um, suggested that we have a permanent organisation um, that could campaign for the rights and liberties of African Caribbean men who have been detained um, under the Mental Health Act, etc., etc., etc. And um, well, it's eleven, twelve years now since the organisation has been going. A lot of um, we've managed to campaign successfully for a lot of changes in. Um, mental hospitals and um, also in terms of the services provided not just within hospitals but also um, in terms of outcare and, and uh, outcare um, and so um, yeah we've a lot of things have happened you know it's, it's almost almost like um I mean I haven't been with the organization since 1996 but I've been with them um, for the last seven years or so now and it's an all-volunteer-run organization. It's also run by service users. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it's um, a user-led, user-run organization. Um, all of our members have had some kind of mental health experience, whether they've been um, um, sectioned or whether they've had some kind of counselling or whether, at the same time, we all of our we also have associate members, people who whose families have been affected by mental health issues, um, whether it's their parents, their children, or friends, um, or colleagues. And, and and these are also people that we also like to welcome into the organization in order to help us to continue. So when you say section, that means people who are forcibly put into the mental health, mental health system, is that right? Yeah, that's right, definitely. So tell us a little bit about, I want to hear more about the organization, the philosophy, and some of the incredible successes that you've had over the years. But tell us about your own story and how you got into the mental health system and sort of like what your experience is as a service user. Well, I've got a kind of strange, strange kind of history, really, because um, um, I come from a broken family. You know, uh, like I, had, I didn't grow up with a mother or father. And, um, and, I, thought, and I think... Um, as a child, I was very sick. As a child, rather, I was very sick. I had, um, had a lot of chronic illnesses. I had chronic asthma, chronic eczema, and um, various other complaints. My eczema was very bad. It was um, kind of, well, it's been described as leprous. <laughs> you know, it was that bad. It was from head to toe. I was covered with um, sores, and I looked very, very bad. I couldn't breathe. My asthma was that bad. And as a result of that and not having any parents, I became um, extra marginalised. And um, unfortunately, I um, couldn't go to normal schools as a child. I had to go to special schools because I also had a hearing problem. I couldn't hear. I was deaf. And, um, um, and so I was in psychiatric special schools and all that um, up until the age of about eight or nine. Um, then I was in care because I've been care all my life as well, and that was also something else that um, came to affect me. What does that mean in care, like foster care? Yeah, like foster children's homes, you know. Um, yeah, in the care of the of the state, sort of thing. 
Um, and then um, as a young man, I just, I mean, as you're growing up, you always question everything around you, you know, um, to a certain extent. But when you grow up in a particular way, you question even more. And that's what I just began to do, question things. And I just began to realize that the normality that was existed in my society or in societies in general was not really normal, for, was not good enough for me to accept as being normal, you know. Um, but um, I was homeless um, 10 years ago. I was homeless for five years because I had a, like a breakdown um, in terms of... Um, I just couldn't cope with things and I just decided to kind of, I shut down, you know, I didn't go out, I didn't communicate and things just kind of got on top of me and I, I got evicted from my yard um, because I couldn't handle being, living within the system and all that kind of stuff. So that greatly affected me a lot. However, um, I didn't want to kind of go back to, because I had memories of my childhood being like um, institutionalized <laughs> and I didn't want to be institutionalized again you know so I actually avoided um, going into hospital or anything like that but I was homeless for five years and I did see some psychiatrists um, who worked with kind of like um, homeless agencies and charities and that and they were kind of sympathetic to the needs and concerns of <laughs> vulnerable people more so than perhaps um, a GP or a hospital you know um, and they suggested that um, I had uh, I had a lot of concerns and I'd, that counselling would be um, might be helpful for me. Um, so I went for a counselling program for a couple of years, and that helped me a great deal to kind of just calm down a bit. Um, but however, I wasn't even sort of like up there, you know, wild or nothing. But just helped me to kind of refocus on myself, you know what I mean, and come out of my shell. Because I was in a shell, I became very subdued and didn't, you know, just didn't communicate with anybody. It's, I think I went for an enough period of about a year where I didn't speak to hardly anybody. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of crazy times. So it was really the counseling that you were able to find some sympathetic, helpful counselors who were able to help you out of this horrible place of homelessness and being so shut down, and then you finally started to pull yourself together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got um, they sought me out. This agency, they sought me out. They referred me to a housing agency, and the housing agency, um, they they help uh, vulnerable people, and um, and I had to fast track to get an um, accommodation again. Was it hard to get um, help and services like that, considering how frightened you were of being institutionalized and getting into a hospital? Did you were you afraid of getting involved with services at all? Or? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely without a doubt. Um, you got to be because the, the you know when you go to any kind of um, um, like government medical institution for any kind of help or advice, the first thing they want to do is give you drugs. Um, and that's what I've encountered anyway, you know. And not only that, most of the time they're very unsympathetic to your needs and concerns. And so I avoided them as much as I could. As simple as that. And I'm glad that I did. <laughs> because, you know, I've seen people who have, who have gone through this, gone through their hands and whatnot, and they come out, the other, when they come out the other way and they're a completely different person. 
So you think that was one of the things that really was able to get you through this was that you didn't really get traditional medical psychiatric treatment like medications and stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was prescribed because I went to see, I had to get a GP at one stage and he paid, gave me some medicines. He was a very horrible GP, by the way, you know. Um, I didn't like, he gave me some medicines, a lot of pills and all that kind of stuff to help my, I had back pain and I had um, depression and a few other bits and pieces and um but you know what? I think I took a pill a couple of times for like pain, like um, pain relief pill. And um, but you know something is like the moment you take the pill, you you know your your, your thought comes to you and tells you there could be something wrong here. It's like you know your spirit questioning your actions. You know what I'm saying? And I had to kind of deal with that. And I, and I decided not to take it and decided that if I did feel depressed, then I must deal with it face on rather than suppress those kind of feelings and perhaps create even more of a monster later on down the line or something, you know? So you mentioned um, being in foster care and being extra marginalized, and this really contributed to your withdrawal and your homelessness. Do you think that the larger society, like you, you talked about how the society, the system is really crazy, do you think that that was really one of the things also that was pushing you into this breakdown state when you when you when you started to have this crisis. Yeah, well, it was a lot of things, you know, because um, I mean, it was financial, it was personal. Um, you know, you, you got your um, your girlfriend. Um, you got money problems. You know, I was living in the inner city area um, at the time, and I had to put up with junkies below me. And, um, uh, and that made me very depressed. It made me scared to come to my house. <laughs> Even though I'm a big man, you know, I mean, a tough guy, or used to be a tough guy, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it just made me, because these guys are dangerous when they're on these kind of substances, you know, they don't have any kind of control over themselves, you know what I mean? Um, and not only that, I had a lot of material valuables in my hand, in my yard, um, all of which I've lost now. <laughs> so, so, you know, trying to guard them wasn't very useful, was it? But, um, yeah, I just couldn't, I just, I just couldn't deal with anything because I had to work. Um, that's where you're forced to work. Um, but I didn't want to work because a lot of the work that was available for me at the time was very low paid, you know, very menial kind of jobs. Um, and I didn't want to be a slave to the system in that way. Um, I did go to study, um, and uh, unfortunately, um, when I was studying, I was studying social sciences at the time, and I was very good at it. I'm, I'm a very good social scientist, if not one, you know, one of the best social scientists that you could ever possibly think of. However, having said that, unfortunately, um, the way that I was thinking as a social scientist was a bit too radical for the um, for for. Um, the institution, you know what I mean, that I was studying with, and they couldn't seem to um, agree with my version of events. <laughs> so unfortunately, I failed on that, and that's another thing that made me depressed because I failed in um, in my exams. But however, I, I don't feel bad about that now because a lot of the stuff that I failed on is actually part of the curriculum now. So you know, it just goes to show you, you know what I mean. They might think they know everything, but really they don't know. Cool. Excuse my language. How did you go from kind of pulling yourself together out of um, homelessness and depression to working with um, with Thacmo? 
Okay, well, it's interesting because when I first got my um, when I first got rehoused um, back in 1998, I think it was, um, my social worker um, helped me to go, suggested and encouraged me to go visit um, um, a place called Mind in Town Hamlets, where they had an African Caribbean group, and where they had an African Caribbean project worker, you know. And Tower Hamlets is a part of London, is that right? Yeah, and Mind is um as a national mental health charity that um it's actually um not just national but it's an international mental health charity that is the largest largest uh, charity mental health charity in Europe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, um they've got an African Caribbean project um, worker in their Tower Hamlets branch. She encouraged me to, she and my social worker encouraged me to attend the group, which they had once a week, and to also get involved with, like, stuff that they do, you know, activities, and um, and that was good. I started going there, I went there for a couple of years, and they also had, um, FACMO was a group that, the consultation took place at Minding Tower Hamlets, and they were based at Minding Tower Hamlets for a couple of years, and I was encouraged to be a part of their activities too. And then eventually I was invited to become a member of their management committee, which I did. Um, and then I just began from there, I started volunteering, you know, to do things for the organisation. Because, you know, this is a very small organisation with no money, and the only way they can get things done is through volunteers, because they had one part-time work, one worker at a time, um, his name was Harry Cumberbatch, um, he was the consultant, the lead consultant um, during the consultation process, and he's the one that put it all together so that the FACNOP could, could become an organization. So I don't know that much um, about the work that you're doing, but what I do know is really amazing. There was an event uh, last night um, called Satisfy Your Soul. It had music, a video. There was a panel discussion that you were on. Uh, Satisfy Your Soul, the disintegration of self through the illusion of materialism that was in Brixton. And just reading some of the things that accomplished, you were able to get Caribbean meals in the hospital, introduce spirituality, um, been pushing for more medication information, uh, promoting the social rather than the medical model. And also you have a very holistic approach. So tell us just about the work that, that Thakmo is doing and what kind of successes that you've had. Well, the work is very important because, you know, we um, African Caribbean people are, you know, traditionally a very spiritual and natural kind of people. Um, we think so in a way, we believe so. And we believe that that is something that has been kind of taken away from us over the years, partly through the experience of slavery and also just the way that um, modern society has evolved and developed um, is, actually, is actually kind of... It's actually something that doesn't um, doesn't agree with the kind of the, the the identity of African and Caribbean people. Like I say, um, we wanted to have more kind of information about medication in in hospitals because there wasn't enough. Um, people used to get medicalized without even knowing what they were taking or the or the dosages that they were that were being given to them. And a lot of the times, this is cause irreparable damage. You know, what I mean, to them mentally, physic and physically. Um, that's why, if you you know, you see certain people who have been institutionalized, they're completely gone, and they know that they're never ever going to recover. And and this is a real tragedy because lives are just destroyed because of these kind of 
these wicked things that um, these people do. And it affects African and Caribbean people much more than it does white people. Yes, partly because of our experience. We have, um, you know, we had to... We have to inherit a system that is that um, we inherit a system and born into a system that is a source of all of our problems. You know, um, in terms of our culture, in terms of our race, in terms of everything who we are. Not only that, we are forced to kind of abandon um, our true identities and to adopt these kind of pseudo identities that that um that the british or the europeans you know kind of force upon us you know and that has affected us a great deal you know there's no doubt about it you know it's affected me because i for one can't i just can't see any sense of of being part of something that is so destructive you know, and it's not just destructive to African and Caribbean people, really, to be honest with you. It's destructive to all people. But the fact that African and Caribbean Caribbean people seem to suffer the most is because we are a marginalized group and we have a history which actually psychiatric and forensic medicine um, um, is actually wouldn't have even... the, the, The foundation for psychiatric and forensic medicine is one that is based from slavery days. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like the experiment continues <laughs> kind of thing. You know what I mean? And a lot of people don't know that, you know. A lot of people are really, really ignorant about what happens in the, you know, about histories. You know, they think that fingerprints, fingerprinting, for example, they think it's about criminals. But really the first fingerprints were this, they're there to identify different black people. Because don't forget, all black people look the same to white people, or they used to. You know what I'm saying? Until they brought this forensic business into um, existence where they could identify which black is this and which black is that. And also, he's talking about eugenics as well, which is another form of medication, um, another form of science that was used to kind of um, um, justify the constructions that they had about black people, about poor people, about Jewish people, and about all different kinds of people. Even though, funny enough, you know, even though they had these negative constructions about certain people, including Jews, a lot of these people who are doing these experiments um, were um, had actually Jewish blood in them anyway. <laughs> so they're kind of hypocritical, you know. Even though they said they were pure European or That's pure right. Aryan or something, they actually were mixed, right. mixed blood. That's right, which is kind of crazy as well, you know. And some of these guys are actually English too, you know what I mean? You're talking about English, German... American? American scientists, you know, going back from the um, late 1700s, 1800s, you know, right through to the current day. And uh, these guys are powerful set of people, you know. They are they they are not just doctors, you know what I mean, who prescribe medicin, um, medicines to people out there and these drugs, artificial drugs, but they also... Um, they also um, sit on the consultancy boards of big international food companies, and they um, they put um, drugs into food. Um, you know, genetically modified products contain a lot of these kind of drugs that we have, as well. So you know, we need to be careful. There's a lot of things out there that we don't know about, but we need to kind of become aware of, in order to um, try and reclaim our humanity. Because that humanity has been lost, um, I think, and 
and it continues to be lost, the more that we become entrenched within this kind of economic, political and social system that is currently sweeping over the world. Some might call it globalization. It doesn't matter what you want to call it. It's there <laughs> and it's real. And so part of the healing has been to reclaim the history and understand the history. And tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing to research African history in London and how that affects um, the um, healing of mental health. Well, like I say, um, part of the... Um, you know, it's about knowing of self in various ways. And... Um, and one of the things that the consultation actually um, for FACMO originally, um, one of the questions, one of the issues that was originally raised was the issue of histories, you know? Like our children, uh, children, for example, they don't get to hear about, um, they don't get to hear about African history. And the only kind of African history they get to hear about is th that of being a slave, you know what I mean? Um, and jungle bunnies and, and and living in spears and I don't know it's just I don't know what kind of stuff all that is about Tarzan you know you get me King of the Ape Men you get me who the fuck is this guy you know what I'm saying is you know <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that we've been given most of our lives and having said that you know white people too white children growing up they get the same kind of shit you know they get shit about their history you know oh how are they the greatest living race on earth and how they conquered the world this that and the other how they civilized the black man and all kind of crazy stuff and that's not true history either you know what i mean and i think they get a little bit confused by this too so anyway we decided that we needed to kind of um address some of the differences that actually existed within society you know and um it so happens that um our first historical project um, was the Power Writers. Um, now, we discovered that there are five Africans, okay, who lived in close proximity in the Tower Hamlets Borough during the late 1700s, okay? Now, we realized that not only did they live in close proximity during the, during the late 1700s, but they also wrote about their experiences. Now, this was amazing. But anyway, before we um, went a little bit further, because initially what we'd done, we created a walk because they lived in close proximity. And um, this walk was pretty good. It was it was fantastic achievement for us because there were no black, you know, like African or Caribbean walks in the borough at the time. What do you mean? What do you mean walk? Well, a walk is like... Um, like, you know, you get a little group of people, okay. Like a tour. Like a tour, yeah, yeah, like a tour. Get a little group of people, like a tour. And you show them where a certain person used to live or where a certain person used to work. And you talk about their history, that person, what they'd done in their lifetime or whatnot. And that's how the walk began. And it was about a half an hour, 45-minute walk and talk session. But we discovered that they also wrote books. Um, they also wrote about their experiences. And... Um, and that was helped, you know, because that was consisted as part of the walk, you know, talking about the fact that these guys wrote. I'm going to tell you their names. Their names are Phyllis Wheatley, who so happens, if I'm not mistaken, to be the first um, uh, female poet of America or something like that. So that's, um, that's, a, that's a history. That's your history, too. And um, you can saw Gwenya saw um, John Morant, Ulodo Equiano, and um, Kubana Otoba, sorry, Kubna 
Ottawa Kugano. These are f- these are the five power writers. Um, we wrote a book about them called Power Writers because we believed that they had power, um, and their power came in their writing. And 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 the subtitle of the book is and the struggle against slavery. And really, what it is a it's just it, it, I mean for the, for us this says it all because they had the actual abolition of the slave trade in 1807 and for us we think that the power writers were the real abolitionists because if they hadn't written about their experiences then those abolitionists like Wilberforce, Sharp and whatnot, they would not have been encouraged you know what I mean to abolish the slave trade and this was an era when people didn't believe that Africans or Caribbean people could read or write or be educated or express their experiences or they were having even human feelings or thoughts or ideas. Precisely. And the thing is, they were, um, you know, is I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly how it was. Um, they was not allowed to read. They was not allowed to write. They was not even allowed to have any form of access to knowledge um, because it was... They wanted to. They wanted people to know that these people. They wanted these people to be kept underground. They want to be downtrodden, you know. But when they actually came to about writing about this stuff, then people realized, well, they can read, they can write, you know. And this is something that many white people at the time were unable to do. Many white people who had access to the information, okay, who had access to resources, you know. And we're not talking about ordinary working class white people. We're talking about um well to do white people lords and ladies and and so called you know scientists and leading members of society at the time many of them could not read or write also and so this is really an outstanding achievement for these people so how does doing the walk um the tour about where they lived and talking about their lives and and writing this book about their experiences and publicizing them how does that help mental health today black mental health today well, it helps in a number of ways because for a start, it helps to um, realize, it helps for people to realize, not just those who have um, been into the system or who have a mental breakdown, but for those, everybody in general, to realize that African history is not just about slavery, but it's also about personal achievement, you know, and personal achievement by those who... Who, who who are facing adversity, who have to live with adversity, you know, day in, day out, in an extreme, in an extreme way. Uh, and I think um, when you're talking about identities, you know, if, you know, for us, for me, myself, to know who I am in this day, it, it's helpful if I know something about the past, whether it's my parents, my parents' parents. And for me, if... Any history I had of black people, of African people, was about slavery. Could you imagine how I would feel now as a person? I would not feel necessarily good as I do now. But the fact that I've achieved different things, you know what I mean? Monumental things makes me feel a bit better about that history of African and Caribbean people and makes me more prepared and more ready to look forward to the future. And it's the same for others as well. It helps to kind of realize their identities and their histories. You know, and these are shared histories. And these people aren't just from one part of Africa. They come from all over Africa, you know, because they're taken from different parts of Africa and and, and taken to different parts of the world. And many of these Af- these power writers, are traveled, they traveled. 
They they wasn't like a couple of them was American. Like I said, Phyllis Wheatley, she couldn't get her, bu her book published in America because of the, the the climate over there. You know, she had to come over to England to get her book published. This is the only place she could get her book published at the time. Yeah, um, and she was kindly given permission by her her mistress at the time to come and do that. It's a, it's a ghost in the room. <laughs> Phyllis Wheatley. Um. Hey, Phyllis, chill out. <laughs> chill out. We're bigging you up here. <laughs> you mentioned before um, the connection between the food companies and the pharmaceutical companies, the medications. And, and it, you know, something we've talked about and you talked about in your talk last night is that really there's a larger system that really is kind of crazy in the way that we live today. And that's really what we need to address if we really want to deal with mental health issues. Can you talk a little bit about that and the holistic approach that you're taking in the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, we're encouraging our members um, to come off the medication and um, and not to advocate it <laughs> so much because, you know, when they advocate it, they're advocating a lot of oppression in the world. And that oppression is not just in psychiatric medicine, it's also widespread in terms of the food that we eat as well. And we like to encourage our members to eat healthily because that's fairly important too. So like, you know, because it's all about drugs, you know. And the thing is, it's funny that I know a lot of people who have never taken drugs or never took drugs until they went into, you know, until they went to, um, um, into hospital, you know. But when they got pumped full of all this shit, they come out, you know, and they kind of have a drug mindset about them. <laughs> And it's so easy for a lot of people who have been to psychiatric to be psychiatric hospital to get hooked on recreational drugs, you know. And we talk about hard recreational drugs here. Really easy, you know what I mean? Even to give them an ecstasy tablet or one of those kind of popping pills. They start from start them off on one of those things and you can get them hooked on anything. I mean, I'm not saying that me personally have been that way or that I've done that because I haven't, you know what I mean? But I know people who have gone down that path and know several as well. So I think that in order to look after people properly, we need to look after them in accordance to in, in accordance with the laws of nature and not against nature. You know, um, you give you're gonna have if you artificial actions have artificial consequences. You know, and that's what I'm saying. That's why you have um, you know we live an artificial life as well. There's so many things about the way that we live and communicate. Um, the way that we exist that is unnatural and I think that we need to address these particular concerns about our humanity and about our, the way that we treat the environment and the way that we um, and the way that we we, we kind of regard nature you know because we live against nature um, we don't live with nature so how can these crazy people out there doctors and scientists want to justify anything that they're thinking or doing when there's nothing that is in accordance or balance with the laws of nature or humanity. They're, you know, they're like, they're a mutation, you know, and we are, unfortunately, we are mutants and we are regarded and treated as mutants, but I don't think that we should embrace that mutancy about us, rather we should reject it and try and reclaim our humanity. You know, we might call ourselves humans and all that kind of stuff, but really, um, I think we take we're we're assuming a bit too much there, because I think humans are. Um, I've always believed that humans are a perfect being, a perfect species. However, we aren't a perfect being, a perfect species, but we are a mutation of our true selves, 
And we need to address that concern. It's like a junkie or alcoholic. You know, you can't cure their problem until they confront their, and accept their particular condition. One of the things that we talked about before was post, post-slavery trauma syndrome. Do you want to t- tell us about that and just how the kind of the generational trauma of these violent experiences of slavery that continue today play a big role in mental health? Yeah, well, post-traumatic slave syndrome is a very serious thing. Um, uh, Dr. Joy Degu, Joy Degu Leary, she's a doctor based in um, the United States. She's a, a psychologist and a social scientist. Um, and I think she's also studied psychiatry um, amongst a few other disciplines. But she's written a book a few years ago about um, post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is something that most people have been aware of, but they haven't formalized it in, a, in, in terms of a theory as such. And, and she has. Um, and basically, the experiences of the past okay, um, become, um, become intergenerational. You know, they become inherent. Um, like, for example, beating children. <laughs> You know, which is something that the slave masters used to do to their slaves. You know what I mean? To to the slaves years ago, and and as we, and I think many of the slaves inherited that particular action and and also beat their children too. I can remember being beaten as a child, and I still know of of, of um people today that beat their children, and as a result, you could end up beating your children. You know, it could be. A lot of other things, even abusing your children. Not to say that I know people that abuse their children um, sexually, but they do abuse them by beating them. And that, to me, is a bad thing as well. Um, I've, um, I think that a lot of people realise now that it's not just about the beatings as well. It's also about the attitudes. It's also about being scared of resistance, or being scared of change, being scared of challenging authority. You know, because you might suffer the consequences, you know what I mean? Um, even black women have that problem because don't forget, a lot of black women used to get raped back then um, by these slave masters and whatnot. Um, and that, that fear could still exist within black women to this day why they um, are often would appear to be quite conformed, you know, not just black women, you know, <laughs> we're talking about all women really, to be honest with you, but conformed about accepting things in the system, you know, when really the system actually is against them and oppresses them more than it does men to a certain extent, you know, um, because they are seen as sexual objects. And all that is part of um, the slave syndrome too. You know, even black men are seen as sexual objects in terms of in terms of their breeding, you know, they're being able to breed good stock, you know what I mean? <laughs> And the woman being able to, to 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 give birth to that stock, you know what I mean? And you have the attitude to this day. Um, I think that, um, and the fact that we also black men now maybe abandon their children. Uh, a lot of black men would abandon their children. You got single mothers because don't forget back then, the the black parents or the black men fathers weren't allowed to be around the children. Just a woman brought them up, you know. And that's something else that has also come to the fore to this current day. So there's a lot of little nuggling little things that we need to think about in terms of the, um, the way that we live that have histories. Um, even the low wages, you know, um, the education, you know, all of these are part of that slave syndrome. Um, and we need to address all of these concerns because they really are serious. 
uh, one of the things that you talked a lot about um, last night during the panel discussion was materialism and capitalism and how the economic system promotes a certain kind of materialistic mindset. How does that play a role in mental health issues for African and Caribbean people in, in England and around the world? Well, materialism is very important because, unfortunately, a lot of black people um, can either be an entertainer or an athlete, you know, um, and that's how you make your money. But even in terms of business and commerce, I think the same problems lie there too. And that's how, that's how the capitalism is very clever because it manipulates people to think and react in certain ways over periods of time. And so initially you had the, the athletes, then you had the entertainers, now you got the businessmen, you know what I'm saying? And the businesswoman too, because you can, if you can get black people to subscribe to a particular ideal, then other black people follow suit. And I think that's a very kind of whiskey business because what it does, it kind of, you have the stretching thing, you have this almost like a stretching, you know, one wants to go this way, one wants to go that way. And, and, and like, do you abandon your history or do you go back to your history? You know what I'm saying? Do you, do you embrace capitalism or do you, or do you reject capitalism? You know what I'm saying? But it's not about rejecting capitalism and becoming a communist or a socialist. It's not about that at all. It's becoming a, it's about becoming a humanist. It's about it's about looking towards your humanity and it's about abandoning the the material kind of aspirations that we have. Because you have to realise that the very the, the 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 capitalist system that we exist in would never have been possible without slavery. You know, the Industrial Revolution would never have been possible without slavery. And what concerns me is that a lot of African Caribbean people are part of this system which is to blame for their histories and their current situation and will con be continue to blame for their current situation, not just of themselves as African Caribbean people, but of people all over the world, you know, all that stuff that's happening in Africa, you know. We're not just talking about the uh, poverty and the famine. We're also talking about the, the genocide that's taking place. We're also talking about, you know, the... Um, the, the underdevelopment of those countries in so many different ways, it's all down to the colonial experience. So when you're talking about going out there and doing all these kinds of things um, in the capitalist world, you've got to realise that there's, um, there's consequences for those actions. You know, unfortunately, we live in a today, world today that is concerned with three things. The main three things we're concerned with is education, vocation and procreation. Right, education, they teach you all about what they want you to know, okay? And um, anything else out there, they're always trying to tie it into what they want you to know. So even where African history is concerned, they will try and justify it so that they can justify capitalism or whatnot. And we, unfortunately, not me personally, but a lot of people fall for that sucking trap, that sucker trap. And then also you've got the vocation because everybody has to work. Everybody has to become a slave to the system. And that's what you're taught to, you know, that's what you're taught at school to become a slave to the system. And then you're taught to, to kind of procreate, you know, to have children that can reproduce, that can maintain and reproduce that system too. And I think that's also a wrong thing because a lot of people just want to have children for the sake of it. But, you know, there's more homeless children in the world now than there ever was. And we're talking in terms of comparative figures. So if you talk about the world population 100 years ago being, being 1 billion, say, for example, and all the homeless children then, and talk about the world population being 6 billion today and all the homeless children now, 
there's at least twice as much homeless children now than than it was then in comparative figures. You get me? So I think to myself, instead of having children, why don't you adopt a, a child? You know what I mean? There's a lot of children out there. They're human life, or they're meant to be. You know, we're all equal shareholders on this planet, okay? Nobody really has the right to have more material possessions than somebody else. Because when you do, you're taken from those that do not have. That's one of the reasons why we have poverty in the world. And it's not about communism. It's just about common sense. Simple as that. What are some things that give you hope? Are you seeing changes that sort of give you inspiration for how things might start to improve? Yeah, but individually. I mean, the World Works thing that was at the other day was good at processing a lot of the conflict that's happening out there in the world. That was the conference that the um, Process Work Institute sponsored in London that brought together, I guess, about 400 people and from 35 different countries talking about diversity issues and colonialism and sexism and economics and all kinds of issues. And that's actually how Philip and I uh, met. So, Yeah, I thought that was really good because I think a lot of people there can do a lot of good things. Um, however, I think you need to bring it down to the humanitarian level and maintain that. I think your foundation for anything that you think about, do it, it's got to be humanity, environment, and nature. You know, those three elements... Okay, are you found that it's almost like um it's almost like a genetic code, you know. It's like it's almost like um it's like um it's like that's your blueprint for humanity, you know. Because um, those are the only three things that we need to concern ourselves with. Everything else has no meaning or significance until you have those three elements and they have to be equilateral in order for them to be effective. It's like an equilateral triangle, you know, it's like a genome. You know what I mean? That's like a blueprint. That's like your, that's like your, that's like your real DNA kind of thing. You know what I mean? And for me, that's what it's about. Yeah, I call it the hen, the hen principle, because humanity, the H, hen, uh, H, and then environment, the E, and then N, nature, hen, the hen principle. <laughs> what are some of the projects that um, Thakmo is working on today, and some of the ones that you have planned? Well, at the moment, we've. I tell you what, we've done. Um, but, um, uh, apart from the Power Writers, the book, which you can find on Amazon website, by the way. Um, for it's the- called Power Writers and the Struggle Against Slavery, celebrating five African writers who came to the east of Lond- east end of London in the 18th century. And um, we've got African History at the Tower of London, which is our latest project. And that, um, um, that reveals um, hist- elements of African history at the Tower of London uh, in terms of people, um, in terms of... Um, the crown jewels, because African people who lived and worked at Tower in the form of slaves and servants um, and soldiers as well. Um, this, the crown jewels, because um, some of the crown jewels came from Africa and some of the gold also came from Africa and other parts of the world too. Um, African arms at the Tower, um, um, African arms, and not just African arms, but arms from all over the world was kept at the Tower at one stage because they had a museum there in the ethnographic department. It's no longer there now. They are at the British Museum, the the the, the War Museum, the National Army Museum, and various other museums in the country. They've all been split up, and that's been from quite a while back now. Um, because Africa was educated first before Europe was. Of course, without a doubt. And all of what the Greeks learned and imparted um, was actually imported from Africa, you know, from Egypt. And, um, yeah, from Egypt, you know, and Ethiopia. 
Uh, that's them, that's where they travel from in order to learn a lot of the stuff that they learned about mathematics, about philosophy. Yeah, it's not something that just sprang out from the ground or sprang out from a man's head. It's actually knowledge that was given to them from others. You know, all this Plato, Aristotle, all of these guys out there, Archimedes, the scientists, a lot of the stuff that they had was, you know, they wouldn't have even begin to conceive it if it hadn't been for the Africans, you know what I mean, who preceded them many hundreds and thousands of years before. And we also got um, a royal menagerie at the, the Tower of London, or used to, uh, a zoo that is. That's a menagerie, is a zoo, another name, old word for a zoo. And they used to have animals there, many which came from Africa and other parts of the world too. Um, so we are looking to expand or continue doing our research at the Tower. And this research book is an initial report is designed to encourage people to to make links and find out about history and to continue the research because there is a, a lot. This is just a small little, like a booklet, literally, but it's actually a report on our initial findings. But um, anybody who wishes to go to the Tower of London or wish to research African history further, they can do so because there's a list of references in here and there's even more references which will be given, which will be added to our website in the future. Are there um, other organizations around the UK that are similar or, or have a lot of the same values and purpose that THACMO has? Or are you pretty unique? Um, we're kind of unique, really, to be honest with you, because a lot of organizations, they just um, they don't have projects as like we have. I think we're quite unique, unfortunately. However, we are looking to link up with others because we have worked in partnership on these projects and we are looking to work in partnership with other African and Caribbean groups, mental health groups if necessary, on producing more stuff, you know, that is of relevance to African Caribbean people and their histories, etc. Tell us the, the web address and how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more or contact you. www.thacmo.org.uk and that's T-H-A-C-M-H-O? Yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, we're a voluntary organization. We're looking to become a charity soon. Um, and I can be contacted on Philip M, P-H-I-L-I-P-M, at S-A-F-H, that's S for Sierra, A for Alpha, F for Foxtrot, H for Hotel, dot org, dot UK. Philip Morgan, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you very much, Will. I'm really glad to be here. You've been listening to an interview with Philip Morgan. He's the volunteer project coordinator of the Tower Hamlets African and Caribbean Mental Health Organization based in London, UK. And that's all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD, Kasila, and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by peer-run mental health communities, freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help us get broadcasts on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net. 